Well, undoubtedly, the 1960s were a decade of incredible social change. And at the end of the 1960s in California, a law was passed called the No-Fault Divorce Law. That wasn't its actual title, but that's in essence what it did. And basically, uh, it allowed one husband, husband or a wife to go to the courts and to say, I want this marriage to end. And to end the marriage, you didn't have to produce any evidence that a spouse had been unfaithful or had broken the marriage commitment in, in any way. You could just end the marriage. And of course, uh, the no-fault divorce approach uh, spread across the nation, and now every state in the union has no-fault divorce laws in place. And of course, uh, these kinds of laws influence uh, what we believe as a culture. They, in some ways, reflect who we are as a culture, but also they influence our understanding of marriage and our understanding of, of divorce. And in today's culture, uh, our understanding of marriage and divorce has changed so much that it makes sense to many to have what you call a celebration when you have a divorce. Uh, there are uh, whole industries designed to provide helps for those who who want to celebrate their divorce. You can order a cake with uh, a groom being hit by a truck, or you can order a cake with a, a topper where her head is cut off or his head is cut off. And we hear that, and in some way we, we sort of smile, sort of a bit of humor in that. But then deeper down, all of us know there's something about that. There's something about that that's just not right. On something as important as marriage and as painful as divorce, we, we need a word from God. We, we need direction from Him about, about divorce and about marriage, about forgiveness and about hope in the midst of brokenness. And this morning we continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus is teaching what it means to be a follower of His, what it means to be a part of, of His kingdom. And in this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, He is explaining what the Jewish people had thought God's law meant, and now He explains what it means in its fullness, or what the principles of God's law would indicate in, in day-to-day living. And last week we talked about the fact that lustful thinking was like adultery. And here, we are going to look at the fact that divorce itself, when it's unbiblical, can be adulterous. That's what Jesus says here in Matthew 5. Um, We'll be in verse 31. Let's look at those verses together. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, in these verses, Jesus teaches that sexual immorality is the only biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. He teaches that sexual immorality is the only biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. In verse 31, he says, it was said, and, and he's done this in the verses prior, and he'll do this in the verses following, referring back to something that was taught in the law. And in uh, Deuteronomy 24 is the passage of Scripture that, that Jesus is talking about. And basically in this passage, if there was some indecency, a man was permitted to divorce his wife 
as long as he gave her a certificate of divorce. And again, we'll come back to that in a moment. But Jesus says, look, you're, you're thinking that divorce is just about the paperwork. But I want you to understand that marriage is sacred. And divorce is something that, that ought to be that we ought to be very careful about. So instead of having a very open understanding regarding divorce, as many of the first century Jews did, Jesus is going to narrow it down and say, divorce is here, and, and we need to put a focus on maintaining marriage. So in verse 32, he's going to give his understanding, his interpretation of the law. But I say to you, and again, this is emphatic, I, I say to you, I want you to understand the way it really is. It isn't that we enter marriage haphazardly and that we end marriages haphazardly. It's not like that, Jesus says. Whoever divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. Well, what does Jesus mean? The, the, the idea is that unless a marriage ends because of some sort of sexual immorality, and this term is broader than just adultery, it could include um, all sorts of sexual behavior. The, the term is porneia, and there's another term that, that means specifically adultery that's used, and that's mokia. And so here, Jesus is saying, unless there's some sort of serious sexual immorality, if you divorce your wife, you cause her to become an adulterer. What does he mean? Well, she's surely going to remarry, and when she remarries, that original union... Your original marriage wasn't broken, and so now she's living in adultery, and the man who marries her is also living in adultery. So let's go back and look at a few key passages that that Jesus brings up here and other related passages to help us get a, a broader understanding of what Scripture has to say about this important topic. In Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, the issue of divorce is addressed. Uh, we, we won't take the time to read the, the passage of Scripture. You can read it later, I hope. But, but let me tell you uh, some highlights. Moses permitted divorce in the case of some indecency. Now, there was an argument about what indecency meant. Some argued that it could mean virtually anything. A man could divorce his wife for whatever reason. And that was a common practice in first century Judaism. Other Jewish leaders argued that it referred to gross sexual misconduct of some sort. And so Moses issued a certificate of divorce. Now, a certificate of divorce was meant to protect the woman because a cruel husband couldn't reject his wife and then turn around and claim, after rejecting her as his wife, that she really was his wife. So in, so in essence, Moses permitted divorce, issued a certificate of divorce so that the woman would be able to, to remarry. In those times, especially, it was very difficult for a woman to be able to make it financially without uh, being in a marriage relationship. So now, if you look at the Deuteronomy passage, Deuteronomy 24.4, the woman who was divorced and who was remarried was not permitted to return to her former husband if her second husband died or they, they divorced. She was not allowed to return to her first husband. Now, why? Well, the reason is because the first husband had defiled her. That's what verse 4 says. Well, what does he mean by defile? Well, the first husband had caused her to commit adultery. He had divorced her without a good reason. And in so doing, he had harmed his, his uh, relationship with her. And so he couldn't take her back. So he couldn't flippantly divorce her and then turn around and decide he's going to take her back uh, later on. And so this was a, a way to protect women. It was a way to prevent divorce and remarriage at will. It emphasized the seriousness of the marriage relationship. And 
we learned from Matthew 19 that divorce was from, that, that Moses permitted this as a concession for hardness of heart or, or for rebellious hearts. At any rate, Deuteronomy 24 reminds us that divorce has serious consequences. Has serious consequences. Now let's look at Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. We looked at this a few months back. We'll look at it briefly here. So in Matthew 19, verse 3 and following, when divorce is brought up by the Pharisees, Jesus taught that Moses permitted this divorce in Deuteronomy 24 because the people had hard hearts, as I mentioned a moment ago. But Jesus said, I don't want to look at what's happening with Moses issuing this divorce for a particular situation. I want us to go back to creation. And he says, if you want to understand marriage, go back to Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis. And so Jesus refers to Genesis 2.24. And let's look at Genesis 2.24 together. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So we see from this passage that marriage unites a man and a woman, and it unites them for a lifetime. Marriage is meant to last a lifetime from a biblical perspective. Now let's fast forward a bit to an important New Testament passage that addresses marriage. Ephesians 5, verses 28 through 31. If you look at those those verses, you're going to see that marriage isn't just about a husband and a wife living in union together, but that marriage has theological significance. Marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ's love for His people. So, So this picture uh, of of marriage uh, as Christ's love for His people is meant to reflect and to teach about how God's love is faithful. So when people look at a marriage, it's meant really to point to, to Christ's love, to the kind of love that's undying, to the kind of love that's sacrificial. So this understanding of marriage emphasizes the permanence of the marriage relationship. So in our culture today, we have developed a lot of conveniences. You know, we go to the store and buy paper plates and uh, paper silverware and, and paper cups or plastic cups. And we, we use those paper plates or those plastic cups or that silverware and we toss them out. It's disposable. It's no big deal. But from a biblical perspective, a marriage relationship cannot be understood that way. A marriage relationship is not just disposable. It's not something you just toss out. It's not working for me anymore, so it's gone. It's, it's not like that. That's, that's not a biblical understanding of, of marriage. So look at another New Testament passage that's very important in this discussion of divorce and, and remarriage. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. Now here Paul's talking about singleness and marriage. And he says, suppose an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse, then let the one who's unbelieving leave. He goes on in verse 15 to say, the brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So if a a couple's married and one of them becomes a Christian, and after becoming a Christian, the one who's not a believer decides to walk away, decides to leave, um, Paul says that the one who is the believer is no longer bound. They're, they're free. They're free for, for divorce, of course, and, and certainly for uh, remarriage. Um, this is probably connected to Jesus' exception. In other words, if an unbeliever leaves a believer, he's probably going to leave the believer for the sake of another relationship in which ultimately he would seek marital fulfillment or intimacy. And so in a sense, it's just a, another understanding of, or it's another aspect of what Jesus has already taught. Um, 
So, to summarize, divorce is permitted only on the grounds of serious sexual immorality. And Paul adds that when a believer is abandoned by an unbeliever, that it's permitted. Now, where divorce is permitted, it seems clear that remarriage is also permitted. When divorce and remarriage occur outside of sexual morality or abandonment by an unbeliever, it causes the one who's divorced, Jesus says, and who remarries to become an adulterer. In other words, if the, the one who... Potentially there are four people who would be called adulterers from, from this perspective. Again, divorce and remarriage are, si- are sinful when the marriage covenant hasn't been broken by serious sexual immorality or desertion by an unbeliever. So what do we see in all of this? Jesus emphasizes the sacredness of marriage, of the marriage relationship. Maybe some of you saw uh, the June issue of Time magazine. On the cover was a story about why staying married is important. Um, And it, it talked about several recent studies, but one by a Cornell University gerontologist or a a, a fellow who studies uh, seniors and older adults. Uh, Carl Pillimer was his name, and he surveyed 700 elderly people, and he noted that 100% of those couples who had had a long-term marriage said that their long marriage was the best thing in their lives. He also said that every one of those said that marriage was hard or really, really hard. That it was tough to keep to keep going. But the study and research indicates that if you'll keep going and make it through the bumpy times and the tough times and the hard times, that, that, marriage, that marriage becomes uh, uh, a great joy in, in, the la- in, the later, in the later years. The article notes that evidence is mounting that few things are as good for people as staying married. Good for people financially, good for people's health, good for life satisfaction levels. Now, as believers, we must recognize that when God designed marriage, that, that when he put marriage together for a husband and a wife to, to marry and to stay married for a lifetime, it wasn't for our harm, but it was for our good. It was his desire to... to help us and to protect us. Now, people say that a Christian understanding of family is oppressive. It's, it's harmful. But in reality, a Christian understanding of the family or a biblical understanding of the family is meant to protect us and to give us structure to flourish and to do well. It's to help us. So let's think through how this plays out in today's uh, world, what, what this means for us in a practical way. First, divorce, while not always sinful, is always the result of sin. So some divorce is permitted. If a divorce occurs because there was gross sexual immorality, that's, that's a divorce that's permitted. If a divorce occurs because uh, an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse and abandons them, that divorce is permitted. It's not sinful. There's biblical grounds for it. But all divorce is the result of, of human sin. We, we, just have to, we just have to say that that's reality. Two, even when divorce is permitted, the possibility of saving the marriage should be seriously considered. Even when it's permitted, the possibility of saving the marriage, is there a way to make this work? That, that ought to be considered. A lot of couples can recover from an instance of uh, unfaithfulness. A lot of couples do recover from that and, and continue on and maintain a strong marriage. So because it's permitted doesn't mean that we automatically ought to push the eject button. Now, you do have biblical grounds for doing that. 
but, but perhaps you should at least explore the possibility of saving the marriage because of the lifelong nature of marriage. Third, divorce and remarriage may be permitted in cases of sexual immorality and of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. So if a divorce occurred and there wasn't a serious sexual sin, there wasn't abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, then the possibility of reconciliation ought to be considered. Is there a way that a former husband and wife can reconcile? Is there a way to, to, to bring this back together and, and make it work? In probably in most situations, there isn't, but, but at least that, that possibility ought to be explored. Fourth, never divorce without counting the cost. Never divorce without counting the cost. Divorce affects many people for the rest of life. There are a lot of personal consequences to divorce. As we, as we walk through divorce, I, one of my good, good friends who faced a divorce, uh, she told Jen and I, a funeral would be a lot easier than a divorce for me because it's so painful. There's a lot of personal consequence. There's a, a lot of consequence in the life of the spouse that, that you confess to love and possibly in kids and, and connected family members. Lifelong consequences. Think of holidays when children are grown trying to go to this family and that family and, and, and it's just so challenging. In 2010... Jennifer Roebuck Morse wrote an article entitled, Why Unilateral Divorce Has No Place in Society. And she called no-fault divorce unilateral divorce because one member of the marriage party could initiate and end the marriage, or initiate the divorce and thus end the marriage. In this article, Morse said, A society which allows the dissolution of marriage for any reason or for no reason will not be a minimalist government society for long. So what is Morse saying? She's saying... That if a culture allows divorce for any reason or for no reason, then eventually the government can't be kept small because government's going to be forced to, to be involved when marriages aren't maintained. And she gives an example of a couple who, who begin living together. They have, they have kids together. Eventually the relationship breaks up. They get in this ugly custody battle over the kids and it's decided when he can have visitation and, and when they can. And, and issues of child support come into play. And then he shows up for visitation and she's not there with her kids. And so now he files a complaint that she's not following uh, the, the rules. And so they get a mediator from the court to, to be involved and to try to work through that situation. And then at some point, he doesn't support his child support payment. And, and suddenly uh, the state's involved and his wages are garnished. And she decides she wants to move to another state. And then he initiates a temporary order to restrain her from moving. And then she makes an, allegu- an allegation of child abuse against him. And then he's prevented from seeing his children. And so when a marriage falls apart... Morse's argument is that there's no way that a government can be small because of all of the complications that come into play. And what we see is, is this. When the family falls apart, it has harmful consequences far beyond the family unit itself. Far beyond. Fifth, marriage is meant to be a picture of God's faithful love of His people. And divorce just doesn't tell that story. Now again, not all divorce is sinful and we need to be clear about that. The Bible says that plainly. Not all divorce is sinful. But when you vow for better or worse, we need to mean it. 
God doesn't call us to this butterflies-in-your-stomach kind of love. He calls us to a gritty death-on-the-cross kind of sacrificial love. That's the kind of love that we're called to with one another. Sixth, support marriage. Support marriage. I I want to encourage you to support marriage and, and to help other couples go the distance. If you have friends who are pondering divorce, encourage them to try to stick it out. If you have family members who are, who are looking at divorce, encourage them to keep going to see if there's any way to save the marriage. Now, there are some marriages that, that can't be saved. There are some situations where divorce is preferred over allowing this ongoing, continuous, gross immorality. And where there's lack of clarity, seek godly biblical counsel. Where there's lack of clarity about what should happen in a marriage, ah. Uh, Husband and wife ought to go to to pastors or elders of their church and and get some perspective and and guidance. Um, And where there is abuse, you should never stay in an abusive situation. You need to to be safe. And where there's abuse, that needs to be dealt with and, and worked through. Where there's abuse, get help. Protect yourself. Sometimes a church has a responsibility to act when this is happening. And what I mean is this. Let's suppose... That a husband is beating his wife. And this husband is a member of a church. Well, Matthew 18 would suggest that the church has a responsibility to go to that man and to say, listen, you better stop what you're doing. You need to turn and repent. You, you can't treat your wife that way. And if, he, and if he's unwilling to change and he continues harming his wife, then eventually the church comes to the place where they say, we are with Tears, not with joy. We are removing you from membership and we're calling you to repent. Now that's Matthew 18. Jesus is the one who put church discipline into place. And, and when a person's unrepentant and, and, and living in open sin, that, that, that is the response of a church often. And the church's goal is not to punish. The church's goal is to, to bring him to a place of repentance, to, to bring him to a place of restoration. But a church has a responsibility for those who are its members in a, in a situation like this. Seventh, keep working to strengthen your marriage. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. Keep loving your husband, your wife. Keep dating and maintaining intimacy. Keep having fun and enjoying life together. Have a family meal together. If, you're, if you've got kiddos, every day try to have one meal where you sit around the table together. If it's early in the morning for breakfast, if it can be, if it can be dinner, that's great. But, but keep having times together as a husband and a wife. Gather around the dinner table together. Spend that time in conversation and building your marriage. And in regards to marriage, your marriage, never use the D word. This is what I mean. When you stood before your husband or wife and you said, till death do us part. Well, there you made a vow. And your vow was that you were going to stay together. So in regards to your own marriage, do not use the D word. You get upset, don't say, well, I'm going to get rid of you. I'm going to walk in out. I'm going to divorce you. Don't use the D word in regards to your own marriage. That, that sets you up. That's not wise. Not, not if you want to stay together. And if you're having trouble, get help. Don't wait till your relationship has gone off the cliff to get help. No, get help here, not way out here. Get help there, yes. But it's much better to get it here before you get there. And get, get help. Work to save your marriage. Eighth, and this one is very important. 
Don't live in the past. Don't live in the past. Get right with God. Make things right with others and move ahead in the awesome and amazing grace of God. Every one of us is a sinner. Maybe you've made mistakes in this area of your life. Well, every one of us has made mistakes and sinned in this area or that area. So, so I don't want you for a minute to think, well, wow, now I'm, I'm black. No, it's not like that. You're not blackballed. All of us are blackballed by sin. All of us are guilty of sin. We all need desperately the grace of God. What does 2 Corinthians 5.17 tell us? It tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You want to deal with your past? Then go to Jesus. What do, you, what do you say to Jesus? Jesus, I've sinned and I've gone my own way. I believe in you. I believe you died for me and I want to follow you. And when you do that, as an unbeliever, God rescues you and saves you and washes your heart clean. And he makes you a new creation. And what if you say, well, I've I made mistakes and I was a believer when I made mistakes. Well, all of us have, have gone our own way as believers 1 John 1, 9 reminds us that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. So call out to Him. Ask Him to forgive you and move ahead. Philippians 3, Paul encourages believers to forget the past and to move ahead in the relationship with God. So if there's been mistakes, the wonderful news for you as it is for all of us is that God's grace is sufficient. That he covers all sin, my sin, your sin, all of our sin if we're in Christ. And wow, that is good, good news. Good news. Maybe you remember the novel The Scarlet Letter based in mid-17th century Boston. And in this letter, there was a woman who became pregnant out of wedlock. And actually, the father of the baby was the minister of a church. And she wouldn't tell anyone who the father of the baby was. And eventually, the town required her as a penalty to walk around on her chest with a scarlet letter A for adultery. And she always had to have that letter on. But I want you to know in the family of God, none of us have to walk around with a scarlet letter. Not if our hearts have been cleansed by the scarlet blood of Christ. Every one of us can have clean, pure hearts. To be a citizen of the kingdom and to have our hearts washed clean means to live in freedom and joy and grace and not in the past. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever the background is, whatever the sin may be, God forgives. Now, consequences remain for sin. We know that. But from God's perspective, there's only two kinds of people, those who are citizens of his kingdom, whose hearts have been washed clean, and those who don't know him. So if your heart has been washed clean, you're a citizen of his kingdom. So if you face the agony of divorce, and maybe the challenges that come along with that, I just want to say to you, there's healing and hope in Jesus. You don't have to live in the past. God wants you to live today and embrace Embrace His his grace and forgiveness and, and move forward. Now, every one of us, think of a couple that you know who has been married for decades. Decades. We got a couple in our church who've been married for over 70 years. Uh, the rain's back there. They're going to kill me later for saying that. But what a, what a great example of faithfulness. Charles and Margaret Rain. That's right. That's something to shout about. I was never supposed to say that, so I know I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. But, um, but think of a couple you know who've been married for decades, and they've stuck with it. And maybe, maybe in this couple, you've seen a tender kind of love, 
They're, they're sweet with each other. Maybe, maybe see them holding hands sometimes or whispering in each other's ear. I, I've seen that. That's a, that's, a precious, that's a precious sight. Hey, let's be that as a body of Christ. Let's encourage that. And let's decide that if we're married, we're going to be one of those couples. And if you're single, then marry someone with that in mind. That you're going to be close to Jesus and you're going to marry someone who's close to Jesus and that you're going to stick it out. You're going to make it work. Keep going. So we've seen this morning that Jesus emphasizes the permanence, yes, the sacredness of marriage. Divorce is permitted Remarriage is permitted in, in narrow circumstances. So let's champion marriage. Let's work on our own. Let's encourage others. And let's show grace. Let's be people of grace because all of us need His mercy. Now the Bible begins with a marriage. It begins with a beautiful marriage of Adam and Eve, the very first husband and wife. But did you know that it ends with a marriage as well? In Revelation 19 verse 7, The scriptures say, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. Then he said to me, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. This is a beautiful picture of heaven. And in this scene, Jesus is the groom and he's about to... He's about to celebrate his marriage to the bride. And scripture tells us that the the bride of Christ is the church. It's the universal church. All people who have believed in him through all the ages. And who will be gathered there for this incredible, wonderful time of celebration and worship. And here in verse 9 it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I ask you, have you been, have you been to a place where you would be a part of this marriage supper, where you'd be a part of this joyous celebration. This is greater than any marriage here on earth. How do you get invited to this wedding? It's to turn from your sin and simple faith, believe in Jesus. If you're here today and you've never believed, I invite you to believe in Him, to call out to Him in faith. And I promise you there's hope and forgiveness and life here on earth. And there's hope and life and joy eternally in Him. Join me in prayer.